0: bem welcome to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu. And in today's episode, I interview Anupam Das. I met him as a lecturer at the Midlands Graduate Summer School. He was teaching some mind-blowing stuff about natural deduction, sequent calculus, cut elimination. So I decided to invite him to talk more about it. So join us in this amazing conversation on the historical perspective of how logic and proof theory, as we know today, came about in the 30s the differences between natural deduction and sequence calculus, cut elimination, and so much more. Let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to one more episode. Today, with me, I have Anupam Das, and he is a lecturer in the School of Computer Science at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He was a Marie Sklodowska curie fellow at the University of Copenhagen. He has postdocs at the Ecole Normale Superieure de Lyon in a called polytechnic. He's done his PhD at the University of Bath in 2013 and have a master's in mathematics in the University of Oxford in 2010. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anupam, and welcome.
1: It's a pleasure, Pedro. I'm happy to be here.
0: I actually have a super random question, but which department exactly do you sit in in Birmingham?
1: Uh, um, as you said, I am in the School of Computer Science. It's a good question because my, my background was really in mathematics and... Um... I think, I mean, I have this confession that I say to everyone who asks me that I still don't really know how to program, so I never learned <laughs> programming. Uh, so I'm, pro- I'm probably one of the few lecturers in computer science, few people who made it to lecture in computer science without knowing how to program. But there are logicians in other departments at Birmingham, which, which makes it very interesting.
0: Right. I'm always, I'm always kind of curious, like that, the reason why I ask this question is because you actually work more in the, you know, logic side of computer science, right? So you could you could fit in philosophy department, you could fit in mathematics department and you can fit in, in computer science department too, right?
1: Yeah, I actually started out learning, um, studying mathematics and philosophy before I transitioned into mathematics. Um, but yeah, I think in what I do in proof theory, you do see people from all of these different disciplines uh, at play and they just, you know, they have similar technical tools in play, but they study slightly different questions. So you know, you see proof theorists in philosophy departments. You see proof theorists in mathematics departments, and so on.
0: Right, right, right. That is that is really cool. And the reason why I invited you for 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 to be here today is because we met at the Midlands Summer School, and I have such an amazing time with your lectures, <laughs> with your lectures. And you know, I, I I was thinking we could we could make an episode just to talk about logics. You know, like talk about what was going on. You know, like you were. You spent a lot of time talking about cut elimination, talking about how Gensen was a person ahead of his time and all of that. And I'm like, man, we need to talk about proof theory. There's so much cool stuff happening there. So how about you give us, we start off by you giving us a little historical background of, you know, right before Turing and Church come up with Lambda Calculus, there is a lot happening in the field of mathematics, of logic, how, how, why, why don't you give us a little bit of of taste of what is going on then?
1: Well, that's quite an ominous question, but you did warn me in advance that you'd ask me this, so I uh, I, I prepared something I'll say. So the first thing I'll say is, for for details of historical stuff, I mean, p- please just read something that's got citations, like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is very good for this. Um, but I think maybe the answer that you're looking for is my personal viewpoint of, of what things were significant and what things weren't.
0: Oh yeah, I should probably I should probably warn the listener by now that everything here sh- should be taken as, you know, personal points of views and don't take our word as the final proof and perspective of anything, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and in particular, there's there's just so many good resources to actually um learn for yourself about the actual facts. But I can tell you what what I thought um was significant and and maybe I'm biased because of the way I learned it. So when I re- when I was a first year undergraduate doing mathematics and philosophy, I remember reading Frege's Foundations of Arithmetic and learning about that whole historical episode. And it somewhat, you know, really cemented my viewpoint of the history of logic. So in broad terms, the 19th century was a story of this re-emergence of foundations and logic and wanting to understand what mathematics was founded upon because, you know, all of this calculus and analysis that had been developed was all very wishy-washy. There was this idea of infinitesimals, uh, dy by dx, this kind of stuff. And so people wanted to know what this stuff was founded upon. And so, for me, to this end, the first serious um, attempt, the first serious piece of work that um, tried to create the foundations of arithmetic was Frege's Foundations of Arithmetic, his his uh, Begriffsschrift. Um, and his idea was quite simple. He wanted mathematics to be seen as an extension of pure logic. So he thought that um, the state, the, the you know, the ontological statement of mathematical truth was the same as the status of logical truth.
0: What what does ontological means here?
1: It means um, so. For example, uh, yeah, okay. So let's not use fancy words. So let's say the state when we say um, a scientific truth, the status of that truth is maybe different from the status of a mathematical truth. So when I say that when I let go of a ball, it will hit the floor, the status of that true statement is different from the status of the statement two plus two equals four or all bachelors are unmarried, because the second two are somehow true by virtue. Of what mm. they're saying. This they're almost analytic truths, what they called it. Whereas the fact the ball will hit the floor, well to, to be fair, I don't actually know it's gonna hit the floor, right? All I know is that it's happened in the past. Uh and by scientific induction, I'm I'm, I'm assuming it's gonna happen again. So in some sense, we should have less confidence in that statement than the statement that two plus two equals four. So the key thing was that uh Freger thought that the status of two plus two equals four. And you know, more generally, more, much more complex statements like you know Fermat's Last Theorem and things like this were the same as the status uh, of statements like all bachelors are unmarried. He thought it was just pure logic, um, and so he developed his um, foundations. And this was, I think, the first example of a quantified logical system uh, that was well behaved. So he, he he created this calculus. And um, before him, there were people like you know Boole and Peirce. Who had developed systems of Boolean logic or propositional logic, but I think Frege was the first to give a meaningful treatment of the quantifiers, and and he he, he thought he had a good definition of number, a good definition or a good theory, um, and he was able to uh, treat arithmetic as an extension of pure logic. But of course, then the the big blow came right when when, when uh, Russell provided Russell's paradox, which was um, displayed an inconsistency in Frege's framework. And that inconsistency is now what we might term naive comprehension—the fact that we cannot have naive comprehension consistently in a the theory, which was Frege's basic principle number five.
0: Right. So, by naive naive comprehension, you basically mean that you know the, the 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 idea of the set cannot contain itself or talk about itself, something along those lines.
1: Yeah. So, more generally, given a property p, you can't take the set of all things satisfying p. Not not in general, because otherwise you would be able to um, formulate Russell's paradox, which takes set of all elements that are not sets of them not elements of themselves. And that induces Russell's paradox. And so so you know, that that for me was the big, first big significant thing that, you know, um, okay, we want foundations, but actually, this is a bit of a, um, uh, you know, you have to be very delicate with them, because because you can make errors, and it's very easy to get inconsistent theories. And that's really what gave rise to um, Hilbert's programme. So Hilbert, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, I believe Russell's paradox was already known at this point. You know, asked for an actual foundations that was consistent, and because of the problem of Russell's paradox, asked moreover for a proof of its consistency within a theory that was so simple that no one could doubt its consistency. So, before Frege proposed a th- uh, foundations of arithmetic, and he um, and its consistency was refuted by Russell. So now Hilbert was asking, okay, we want our foundations, but we moreover want a proof of the consistency of these foundations within only using reasoning that none of us can dispute. So it must be an incredibly simple theory. And, you know, this led to um, Hilbert, uh, so Russell and Whitehead's uh, Principia Mathematica. Um, this was, you know, a, a sort of typed framework where um, Russell's paradox was avoided by typing sets as they increased in their abstraction complexity. And then, of course, the the, the big blow to Hilbert's program was, was then Gödel's incompleteness theorems, because... He said that not only can you not prove the consistency of Principia Mathematica or Piano arithmetic within a simple theory, you can't even prove it within itself. You must use more complex axioms to prove the consistency. Um, And and in in a sense, like if those results closed the book on, say, mathematical logic, they sort of opened the way for computational logic because around the same time, these sort of techniques, these diagonalization techniques, for example, um, played a huge role in the foundations of computer science. So, you know, this was um, the same sort of technique that Turing used for his undecidability of the halting problem. And, you know, results like this from the 30s, of course, they have, you know, we have reflections of that nowadays. Nowadays, when we talk about debugging and and verification, these all sort of like trace their roots down to these sort of foundational results. So I, I see the 30s as really the the, the pivotal point where, where um, OK, it's, it's unfair to say mathematical logic died, but let's say foundations sort of had hit their peak and computational logic was just beginning. And, uh, and uh, you know, in the next 50 years, I think was a story of the rise of computational logic.
0: Right, right. And where does Gensen comes into play there?
1: That's a good question. So around the same time that Turing and of course, uh, Church and Kleene came up with their models of computation, Gensen, um came up with his systems of proof. So until until this time, the only sort of, Systems of reasoning we had were these axiomatic systems, attributed variously to uh, Frege, Hilbert, Dedekind, and Ackermann, and these gave us ways of reasoning. And of course, Gödel did prove the completeness theorem for these um, for these systems, but we had no way to actually manipulate proof. We had no idea, no way to actually you know do some proof theory with them. And so Gentzen introduced natural deduction and uh, the sequent calculus. And if, if, if Gödel's results, his incompleteness theorems, were kind of a pessimistic result, you know, they were saying that there are things that we cannot prove, and we can't even prove our own consistency, and that sort of thing, then, then Gensen's results are much more optimistic, because he proved his famous Hauptsatz, the cut elimination theorem. And this states that, you know, of the things we can prove in, in pure logic, not arithmetic, but at least in pure logic, um, at the very least, you know we can prove them without making any guesses. We don't have to make any clever mathematical guesses in order to prove them. Uh, we can just proceed in a sort of deterministic fashion, well, almost deterministic fashion, to prove theorems of pure logic, um, only using concepts found in the conclusion of the proof itself, the theorem that you're trying to prove.
0: Is that what they call the analytic proofs? Is that precisely? Related? Yeah, this is
1: the yeah, this is the. Um, so when people say analytic proof, they mean proofs that satisfy the subformula. Pro- they usually mean proofs that satisfy the subformula property, um, and this is a consequence of Gentzen's cut elimination and normalization theorems for sequent calculus and natural deduction, respectively. And I think, at, like I said, at the time, this was uh, you know we we had the inception of something like computability theory because of the work of Turing, but also of Kleene and Church. Um, and we, at the same time, had the inception of modern proof theory, because um, until then, you know, people weren't doing proof theory. They were just doing formalized reasoning. And so the 30s was really, you know, the birth of many areas. I mean, you could also argue it was the birth of, of model theory because, you know, Tarski had done his work, Erdl had in his completeness theorems. Um, and, you know, Tarski's undefinability of truth came in. Uh, and the birth of modern model theory probably was around the 30s. Maybe I could rephrase my previous statement as the death of modern logic as saying the death of modern set, the death of set theory. Maybe, of course, <laughs> a lot of set, set theory was done, but that's pretty pretty much what people were doing, right? I mean, right. Um, maybe I should also give a lot of credit to Cantor in the eighteen eighties. I want to say,
0: right, because right.
1: Um, of course his diagonal argument has been pervasive throughout logic, computation, everything, and so.
0: That's where everything actually started, right? That was when we were like, right. oh, wow, there's actually a lot more happening here than we thought, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, pe- people didn't know about multiple infinities, right? So his, right. In, in right. Cantor's work originally was just to d- uh, mathematically prove that there were different t- sorts of infinity, you know, infinities that were not equinumerous. And, and, and people just didn't know that until the 1880s, 1890s.
0: And I find absolutely fascinating the fact that he was actually... Nobody actually kind of like believed him. They could see his proofs and they could not disprove what Cantor had. I didn't proved, know that. You know? So no one believed what he was saying? Nobody, Yeah. And he actually died <laughs> in a, a hospitium, like uh, in, a, in a sanatorium.
1: I think I only know that from Logi Comics, actually. And I, I'm very really <laughs> weary, weary of how accurate Logi Comics is.
0: Well, it's I don't I don't know if he was he was probably not put there because of you know like his mathematical stuff. There was most likely other stuff happening, but people just didn't believe his proofs. Like he could see that there is this multiple infinities, but nobody actually could make sense at that time. So he was a lot ahead of their time in the 80s, right? And and set definitely set the ground for what was happening here in the 1930s, which which we're talking about now. Let's mm-hmm. let's go back a little bit on what you were saying about. Um, said something along the lines of undefinability of truth, I'd like to go back there again. This is new to me. What what were you saying there? Uh, Tarski's model theory?
1: So th- th- this this comes, this is in the world of arithmetized um, mathematics. So you have to imagine that, this, so, so to, to understand undefinability of truth, we're in a setting where coding now exists. So pre-1930s, people didn't really think of coding um but then um you know the idea of coding became more and more relevant throughout the 20s you know with recursive function theory starting to appear
0: by coding you mean using another language to encode something else or coding as like programs and algorithms
1: no yeah I, I i mean um encoding things as natural numbers or binary right. strings
0: the same idea that godel used in his in his proof right encoding, precisely so the idea numbers, that right.
1: you can you can have uh, you can have interplay between a program and its code, you know, you can feed the code to the program itself. So the program has it um, takes uh, maybe a natural number as input, but it itself can be seen as a natural number because it has code. So this idea of playing with coding is now exists. It's in the setting. And Tarski um, wanted to talk about wanted to use this idea to talk about truth. So he said, "Look, I want a predicate, a formalized, a formal symbol of a language uh, that takes as inputs codes of, of sentences." And evaluates whether the sentence is true or not but of course we could have because of, of girdle's diagonal lemma uh well i should say i don't know if Gödel actually called it a diagonal, because of his first incomplete the techniques used to prove his first incompleteness theorem mm-hmm. no such uh predicate can exist there is no first sort of formula in the language of arithmetic that can express this t predicate for for truth because otherwise by the diagonal lemma you could express the sentence this sentence is not true which would have no consistent truth value so Tarski, uh this is usually attributed to Tarski, but as far as I know, I, th- I think this is really a consequence of Gödel's theorems, but, for some, but but Tarski was the one who maybe developed the ideas in, in, in a sequence of papers, I think written in Polish even. But yeah, it, it, when we say Tarski's is undefinability, undefinability of truth, we mean that you know there is no uh, arithmetical formula that accepts just the true formulas, as the codes of true formulas.
0: Right, right. This is, seems very similar to what Turing was doing with his universal Turing machine, right?
1: in a way? Uh, Yes, it is. You're quite right. But it's it's a negative result, right? It says there's no universal um, arithmetical property. So yeah, you can see this. So so truth predicates and universality are just two sides of the same coin. So what does universal Turing machine say? It means there is a universal sigma 1 predicate, right? So sigma 1 means you have an existential quantifier and uh, then a recursive matrix. And we have a universal Sigma I predicate. We also have a universal Sigma two predicate and a universal Sigma three predicate and so on and so on and so on. What we don't have is a universal predicate for them all at the same time. Not not that it is self-arithmetical. So the set of arithmetical truths somehow doesn't form a nice um, class of languages because uh, it has no universal problem.
0: Right, right. That is absolutely fantastic. Do you want to give a brief introduction about this Sigma predicates you're talking about? Because when you we were talking on the summer school, I think you gave me a brief idea of this hierarchy of, of proof systems. I believe this is what you're talking about here.
1: It's a hierarchy of formulas here. So this is really right. kind of a descriptive set theory stuff. So, so, um, it's just, so if you take the Turing machines uh, and take the halting problem for that, th- this ends up being uh, what's called a sigma one property, because if you look at the way to state that, the statement is there is a time bound such that this machine will terminate within that bound, and accept. So you can, if you think of the halting problem for Turing machines, uh, note you can that write that down as an existential property, existential arithmetical property. Right? You can say there exists a time bound such that this machine will terminate within that time and accept. Right? So the latter part, the fact that um, to terminate within some time and accept, that's a recursive property. You just run the machine until that time bound. But whether the time bound exists or not, Is the thing that's hard to establish. And it's called sigma one. Well, the sigma just means you have an exists at the front, and the one just means that's the only quantifier you have in front of a recursive um, matrix. Um, And then this arithmetical hierarchy, you can build up on top of that by just alternating quantifiers.
0: And this gives you more expressibility in a sense?
1: Uh, Yes, provably. There are diagonal Mm -hmm. problems that separate each level of the hierarchy. But nonetheless, each level of the hierarchy has a universal problem. But the union of the hierarchy, which is just all arithmetical formulas, all arithmetical predicates, has no universal problem, which is the same as saying it has no truth predicate.
0: Oh, so that's where Tarski comes in.
1: Exactly. So you can see Tarski's results or Gödel's results even uh, in a computational side. So you know, if you're a philosopher, you call them truth predicates. If you're uh, a com- if you're a computer scientist, you call it a universal problem. Right. It's the it's it's really two sides of the same coin.
0: Now, you also mentioned before this that. When Genson came in and gave a more algorithmic approach to logic, how was it done before that?
1: Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to respond to this, but I, maybe I'll reiterate that you know the, the, the first time we could actually talk about proof rather than provability was when Genson introduced his systems. So until now, you know, we were talking about things that we could prove. So we had an axiomatic system. We knew knew that the things that we could prove were closed under, you know, modus ponens and other rules of inference. But we didn't really uh, know how to uh, study a proof itself and see structural properties within the proof. And you mentioned algorithmic um, approach. Well, we never had ways to, um, when I talk about manipulating proofs, we never had ways to put them into normal forms. And that's what Genson contributed. In his sequent calculus and his natural deduction, he, he you know, most uh, famously described a notion of normal form of a proof, and his cut elimination theorem gives us a normal form. And of course, w- w- what's amazing about that is many years later, the works of you know Curry and Howard gave us ways to see these normalization processes, namely for natural deduction, as uh, as computation itself, you know, by, by uh, analysis by analogy with the simply typed lambda calculus. And, and so, you know, this was, um, you know, while proof theory and computa- and com- maybe computability theory were quite separated at the- this time, they both kind of found their roots in the 30s. It turned out that, the, you know, the developments uh, were actually fundamentally intertwined by um, the Curry-Howard-Lambic uh, correspondence.
0: Right. And it, you're saying that you can you can put that church and clean using normalization in the lambda calculus very closely tied to cut elimination. It it basically means that cut, cut elimination itself is close tied to the notion of termination of programs. Right.
1: That's a good, uh, that's a good um, viewpoint. Um, so firstly, I, sh- I should say it's related to normalization in natural deduction rather than cut elimination per se. There, there are ways to see typed calculi uh, related to sequence calculus, but that's much more modern. Yeah. So in the way that a simple typing or a type system can guarantee termination of a program the termination theorem for normalization in natural deduction uh, has the same content, right? It says the same thing. It says that if you've got a class of proofs or a class of terms um, in this system, then you know you, you you determine a well-defined functional.
0: So, what's what's the difference here between natural deduction and sequent calculus?
1: Ah, um, I'm not sure what level I should address that in. This is a whiteboard-style question, right? Genson first introduced natural deduction. I think this—I I believe this was the first system he wanted to introduce because, for him, it was—you know—as the title suggests—it was natural, um, and he thought this 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 reflects how we actually do reasoning, you know, in everyday mathematics. And for him, he thought this was really the the one true system. So, natural deduction has rules like you know, if you've got A and B, then you can infer A. If you've got A, then you can infer A or B. Uh, And those two rules are sort of dual to each other. And actually every connective in natural deduction has a so-called introduction rule and a so-called elimination rule. So for conjunction, I just told you the elimination rule, it was from A and B, you can infer A. But the introduction rule is from a proof of A and from a proof of B, you can infer A and B. Um, And you can think of these from the curry howard correspondence point of view, you can think of the introduction and elimination rules as uh, constructors and destructors respectively. So in a in a type system, you have uh, constructors, and these constructors just correspond to the introduction rules uh, in a natural deduction system, and the destructors correspond to the elimination rules. So implication is probably the most interesting one. Implication says that if you've got a proof of a and a proof of a implies b, then you, you can infer b. And what does that mean on the other side of the Curry Howard Lambek correspondence? Well, this is just application, right? So you've got an, um, a function of type a implies a arrow b. And you've got an argument of type A. And so the constructor just apply. is just the application constructor. Or you apply the function F to the argument A, uh, uh, argument B. I can't remember exactly what I said there, but the second argument. So given all that and given all this nice stuff, well, Genson wasn't aware of the Curry-Howard correspondence at the time, as far as we know. Given this nice sort of correspondence, well, what, why have sequence calculus? Well, from Genson's point of view, he was unable to prove things about natural deduction that he really, really wanted to prove. And my understanding of this is that this is namely the normalization theorem for classical natural deduction. So there's an interesting anecdote, actually. I, I, my understanding is that for many decades, we believe that he was unable to prove, we did not prove normalization for either intuitionistic or classical natural deduction. And the story was that he uh, developed the sequent calculus in order to um, prove this result. So you can do a little detour. You can take a natural deduction proof. You can translate it to the Sequent Calculus. Then you can do this little black box cut elimination technique, which I haven't yet mentioned much about. But then the cool thing is, once you have applied cut elimination, you end up with a cut-free proof. And from here, you can translate back to natural deduction, and you'll get what's called a normal natural deduction proof. So this is a natural deduction proof without any detours. So you don't have alternations of introduction and elimination rules. And this was why Genson. I, I mean, the story is, this is why Genson introduced uh, the Sequent Calculus in the Perth, First place, because for him it was, a, it was a roundabout way of showing the normalization theorem for natural deduction. Now, as it happens, um, I, and I'm, I'm not completely sure of all the details here, but I believe it was um, Jan von Plato who, a few, um, a couple of decades ago, I think, um, found some notes and memoirs of, of, of Genson. And it turns out that Genson actually did prove the normalization theorem for intuitionistic natural deduction. Uh, but I think he he declares that he was unable to do so for for classical natural deduction. And actually it's it's for that reason that he developed the the sequent calculus. So um, he he actually did have a a lot of results under his belt at this time. Um, So so it's an interesting story that, but that's why he developed the sequent calculus. So I haven't answered your question though. What is the sequent calculus then? Well, it's based upon a simple idea, which is instead of having introduction and elimination rules, we kind of uh, flip the derivation on it um, by 90 degrees. We have explicit listing of hypotheses. So instead of introduction elimination, we now have left and right. So we uh, elimination rules become introduction rules on the left and introduction rules become introduction rules on the right. But there's one more key thing, which allows us to talk about normal, which allows us to get, get a normal form, which is to bring duality to the forefront. So deduction, uh, when you have explicit listing of hypotheses in a in natural deduction, you have a set of hypotheses entails a single formula, and then for natural for classical logic, for example, you might have an elimination rule which is something like if you can derive not not a, then you can infer a. But this is uh, not what happens in the sequent calculus. Instead, in the sequent calculus, we have a duality between the left hand side and the right hand side. We can have many formulas on the left, which are the hypotheses. But we can have many formulas on the right too. And if the left-hand side is interpreted as a conjunction of hypotheses, and the right-hand side is interpreted as a disjunction of conclusions. Um, And that De Morgan duality between conjunction and disjunction is really one of the key features of the classical sequent calculus that makes its proof theory quite well behaved. And that's the thing that's sort of missing in natural deduction. We don't have that good account of duality.
0: So this simplifies the meta-theoretical proofs he was
1: interested in. Exactly. In particular, cut elimination goes through. Uh, not without its problems. I mean, there, there are serious termination issues with cut elimination, and of course, non-confluence issues too. But he was able to prove it for the classical sequence calculus. And it crucially, uh, his method and all methods, uh, well, I'm not sure I should say all methods, but, but the, the classical methods um, take advantage of the fact that you're uh, dual, and that you have many formulas on both the left and on the right.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. So, the, the key idea behind cut elimination here is that we don't have to do any guesses in our proof anymore, right? Like that's, right. that's where the guesses come in is, is is when you do a cut. So yeah. why is there is there, a, I don't know, a key intuition why using the sequent calculus allows you to prove this sort of thing so much easier? Uh,
1: that's a really good question. Um, I think so. For, when you speak to a structural proof theorist, what do they do when they try to get rid of something? So there's usually a phenomenon like, you know, say guessing or non-analyticity, it might be called. And you want to eliminate this phenomenon in your proof. So what they usually do as a structural proof theorist is they'll take the rule in question, you know, the the the, 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 the culprit. They'll take the culprit and they'll start trying to eliminate it. How do they eliminate it? Well, they do the only thing they can. They push it up the proof until somehow it disappears completely. But as they're doing it, they realise that they get blocked at certain points, so they then have to generalise that phenomenon, so that they can go past that step, and eventually they get a general phenomenon uh, that they're able to eliminate completely that subsumes the original phenomenon, um, and that's exactly what cut is. It's a generalisation of modus ponens. So modus ponens is the is the fundamental non analytic rule in your Hilbert Frege system, right? It's A and A implies B infers B. And the problem is, if you're looking bottom up, you're trying to prove B, but you've got to guess this formula A out of nowhere.
0: Right.
1: Um, and so you can think of just saying, okay, I've got um, a calculus, I've got introduction rules on both sides or introduction elimination rules, but now I've got to deal with this uh, modus ponens. So let's just try and eliminate it, and then immediately you get stuck on the first rule, and you realize, well, I'll need a generalization of modus ponens that allows for some side formulas. You know, not just A implies B, but you know maybe some C or C and A implies B or D. Um, and you can, and then you can cut the A against the A, and that's how you end up with a cut. And so the cut is just a generalization of modus ponens um, that's designed to to actually play well, designed to be eliminable. And actually what Genson did is he actually had to generalize it further. So he generalized it to something called a mix, which is what he really eliminated. But there are proofs of cut elimination that don't require that.
0: So a mix is a generalization of a cut.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like a cut merged with contractions on both sides. So instead of, so if you think of a cut as um, gamma entails delta A um, on one premise, and then gamma A entails delta on the other premise, and that infers gamma entails delta, it's just having multiple copies of A on both sides. That's ah, that's the mix.
0: Right, right. Wow. Right. No, yeah, it, it, it does make a lot of sense because that's what we do in mathematics and logic all the time. It's like you have a, a precise problem, you want to prove it. How can we make it, our life easier here is we generalize the problem first. So yeah, in, a sense, exactly. in a sense, we can think of sequence calculus as a generalization of natural deduction. Not necessarily it's an easier system to work with, but it's, an, it's definitely an easier system to prove theoretical properties and then translate it back to natural deduction because there is a one-to-one correspondence. Well,
1: and i should say that this is this is how i believe Genson thought about it he thought of the culmination of the sequent calculus as a as a calculus for the meta theory right. of natural deduction right um it's it's i think it's really only after Genson's work that um proof theorists started using the sequent calculus as you know the, the go to calculus in its own right um oh, i think it's, it's gotten to yeah i mean now i think the sequent calculus is the main calculus of proof theory i mean most and this is the the, the one Calculus that, that all proof theorists, so I would say no, and and should know. Um, e- there are many proof theorists who don't know who don't really know natural deduction. I would say, uh, but I think all proof theorists know the sequent calculus.
0: Right. Coming from a CS background, I just knew natural deduction, and I got I got my hands dirty with sequent calculus with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting
1: well uh maybe i'm being biased i mean it depends what you call proof theorists really i don't oh, you know no, no but yeah i, I don't want to be, i don't want to be this guy who excludes certain people right so one. i'm sure if you if you're a proof theorist from a sort of type theory point of view then of course natural deduction is much more natural to you and um there's no, there's not as much reason to know about sequence calculus but you know so i started out um doing some proof complexity and in in, in proof complexity uh, you talk about Frege systems, and then at a stretch, you talk about the sequent calculus or, or maybe a Tate calculus. Oh, in the proof theory of arithmetic, actually, many people talk about things that are closer to sequent calculus than natural deduction. They, they're called Tate calculi. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think many people really think about natural deduction there. I, I think proof mm-hmm. sequent calculus right. is, the, is the most interesting thing. Well, well,
0: in a sense, we can also argue that proof theorists are interested in theoretical properties. So it makes a lot of sense to use something more close to sequent calculus, right?
1: Yeah yeah I I think I think methodological reasoning is much easier for the sequent calculus. So certainly you know I mean if I, if someone asks me to go away and prove the consistency of arithmetic uh, I would turn to the sequent calculus arith- uh, immediately. That said um just recently we had this reading group in, in my group and uh, we went through the proof of the consistency of arithmetic in the Troelstra Schwichtenberg book Basic Proof Theory and they do it in natural deduction so And I was rather convinced from that exposition that actually the natural reduction proof was quite, you know, was fine. It it works fine there. I just wasn't used to it.
0: Okay. So, so you're saying basically, I, I, I don't follow much of what's happening in the proof theory world, but you're basically saying that you're, you're looking into these different systems and different formalizations and doing the natural, um, uh, natural numbers meta-theoretical pro- proofs in this system. What, what do you gain from that? Like you're looking for the strengths of this particular system, and what's what's the research interest there?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, so let's say, I mean, w- without talk, um, getting into s- actual strength measures and stuff, some of the fa- beginning motivations of proof theory were also coincided with the motivations of Hilbert's program. So. We want to prove the consistency of, say, Piano Arithmetic. Okay. So Gödel tells us that we can't prove it within Piano Arithmetic.
0: Before we continue, do you want to give a a brief explanation of Piano Arithmetic, just in case our listeners are not
1: familiar? So so Piano Arithmetic. So so, um, broadly speaking, you can think of this as the theory of induction. So you have first order logic, the language is just the language of arithmetic. So you have a symbol for zeros, a symbol for for successor, uh, addition and multiplication, and let's say inequality. Um, And from here, you can write down, you know, a lot of undergraduate mathematics can be written down in this language, maybe not analysis, but certainly a lot of first order number theory uh, can be written down in this language. Um, And the crucial axioms in piano arithmetic are, okay, you have primitive recursive definitions of the symbols of, you know, addition and multiplication in terms of successor and zero, but crucially you have the induction axiom schema. And this says that from, uh, a of zero and for all X, A of X implies A of X plus one. You can infer that for all X, A of X. Okay, so is this the usual induction. And right. so I would say piano arithmetic is really the first order theory of induction that um, over the language of arithmetic.
0: It's, in a sense, it's the weakest system which we can do interest in mathematics, right?
1: Uh No, it's not the weakest no? system we can do interest in mathematics. Okay. There have been a number of people who have tried to do it in weaker systems. I think fam- famously, I mean, Ed Nelson wrote the... Um, Predicative uh, arithmetic i think or predictive mathematics uh, which is a book um, that tries to found much of uh modern mathematics in a much much weaker theory um and, and of course you have you have all these people now doing things like bounded reverse mathematics or even reverse mathematics where uh, a lot of uh, mathematics is doable in much weaker theories so i think um you know, you really have to search hard to find things that can't be done in the theory I sigma one. So this is the theory of induction on semi-recursive predicates. Um, so induction on things like the halting problem, right? And mm-hmm. um, in this theory, it turns out you can you can well-define all the primitive recursive functions and only the primitive recursive functions. So, so things that you can't prove in this theory are things like well-definedness of the Ackermann-Peter function. Things that you can't prove are... Um, you also can't prove things about, like, uh, like infinite combinatorics. So, like, um, the infinite pigeonhole principle or or, Ko- or Koenig's lemma, these things that you cannot prove. But, you know, if you're doing, you know, some basic algebra, if you're doing some uh, number theory, a lot of, you know, really a lot of interesting mathematics can be done in a theory as weak as I sigma one, or prim- also primitive recursive arithmetic. So I, I think... Um, you have to do a bit of work to find things that can't be done in in these weak theories. And, you you know, there are people, there are people who work on this, like people like in reverse mathematics, who try to classify the strength of certain results in mathematics by the axioms needed to prove them. And their starting point is a generalization of I sigma one called RCA zero, which is still a form of primitive recursive arithmetic. And, you know, I mean, like I said, this is the starting point because a lot of mathematics can already be done in RCA zero. So it's, you start thinking about, you know, interesting problems in analysis and infinite combinatorics that start taking you beyond RCA zero.
0: But then coming back to piano arithmetic now, uh, maybe we use piano arithmetic because its historical perspective. Then is it what um, we're used to working with? Work?
1: One one could argue that, but I think if you think indu- okay, but by the, by the same argument, we study induction or we use induction and recursion because of a historical perspective. I think most of us believe that the status of induction and recursion is much more general than just convention. They seem to be quite natural things. So from a computational point of view, recursion is just such a natural a way of doing some programming, right? It's such a natural feature of programs that um, you know I think of it as something more than convention. And same with induction. So recursion and induction are two sides of the same coin. Induction is the logical counterpart of recursion. So as soon as you think that induction is a natural thing to study then peano arithmetic just falls out because it doesn't matter what the other axioms are it turns out if you, any choice of basic axioms uh, that's sufficiently large all become equivalent once you add induction ah. so so i really would frame peano arithmetic as the theory of mathematical induction in first order logic uh, over the, over the natural numbers okay. so it's i think it's quite a robust uh, theory for that reason right. And there are, you know, there are books that talk about this sort of robustness. So, you know, I guess a well-known one is the Hayek-Pudlak book, Metamathematics of First Order Arithmetic. And, and you know, they sort of gloss over the basic axiomatization, and they just talk about the things where it differs. So do you take induction as a starting point? Do you take minimization as a starting point? Um, but really it's the study of those principles of induction or of minimization or of, you know, replacement, um, these sort of principles. And so where was I before this? Um, so yeah, if, if, if you want to prove the consistency of piano arithmetic, then, then this is something that proof theory gives you, it gives you a way to prove that. So what is consistency, it says there's no proof of false. So what's one way to prove that uh, a system is consistent? Well, a first attempt that the structural proof theorist might do is to just show cut, cut elimination for the system. So suppose you had a proof of false, and you have cut elimination, then you have a cut free proof of false. But then, because cut-free proofs are analytic, by the subformula property, this proof of false can only contain subformulas of the f- of the formula false. But a direct inspection of the rules tells you that there can be no uh, concluding rule here. No rule right. can have conclusion that's just false. Right. And right. then you so you immediately get consistency from cut elimination. Wow. Now, what goes wrong for arithmetic? Well, the problem with arithmetic is you don't have cut elimination for arithmetic because, uh, well, it's because of something quite natural. You need inductive invariance. In, in, in everyday mathematics, we do use induction, and we have to guess, make clever guesses with induction invariants. You know, when you want to prove something, sometimes you can't just prove it directly by induction. You have to generalize the statement that you prove so that the inductive invariant holds. Um, and those inv- invariants are things that you fundamentally need to guess. And actually, for, via proof thread techniques, we can show that you really need those guesses. You know, there's nothing you can do to eliminate those guesses. But what Genson did, well, maybe he didn't spell it out in these terms, but it's, it's maybe more apparent in Schuter's reformulation of one of his consistency proofs, is he shows cut elimination for a sort of infinite version of arithmetic. So he takes induction he translates it to some omega rule. So he just unfolds the induction into infinitely many uh, derivations. And then he proves a cut elimination in this infinite system. And the same argument works. You still get consistency. The only problem is he has to control this infinity uh, using a careful ordinal annotation, and this is what leads you to require induction up to this ordinal epsilon zero, which is this famous proof theoretic ordinal of piano arithmetic. And you ask me what a proof theory is doing. Well, that result of Gentzen essentially inspired um, you know, a, a, a long line of research which tried to establish the proof theoretic strength of, of various important theories. And more importantly, a proof theoretic uh, treatment, a proof theoretic analysis of these theories. That means have a constructive interpretation of these classical theories. So piano arithmetic, famously, we can uh, interpret it into heightened arithmetic by a double negation translation, which can in turn be interpreted into, uh, you know, a really, really simple programming language like system T because of something like the dialectic interpretation or realizability interpretation. And so uh, this line of work seeks to interpret stronger and stronger theories and to actually have a measure of their proof theoretic strength. Um, so PR arithmetic, we have epsilon zero. This was, you know, um, famously improved to even in predicative, th- in, in predicative theories, you know, where you have quantifiers over sets uh, that may include themselves. Right. So the um, something called pi one one comprehension and a famous result of 20th century proof theory is to get interpretation of this into predicative theories of inductive definitions. And so I, g- I guess one thing you can say in a nutshell is what's the biggest open problem in proof theory is to give this interpretation for second-order piano arithmetic. So second-order arithmetic, sometimes called the theory of analysis, uh, we have no proof theoretic measure of this theory. Well, we have we do have a proof of its consistency, uh, thanks to Tate and also uh, Girard and Spectre, but we don't know what this, what strength this uses. We have no idea what principles this is using. We don't know what ordinals we need to uh, establish this consistency.
0: So, can, can you repeat that? Which which theory is this? The theory? This of... is uh,
1: PA, PA2. So, this is called second order Piano arithmetic. So, this is essentially defined almost exactly like Piano arithmetic, but you add a comprehension axiom to define sets and uh, you have induction over the extended language. Um, and this allows you, this language, because you're second order. Uh, allows you to... Oh, so when I say second order, I mean uh, sort of two-sorted first order, really. But this glossing over that, this language allows you to talk about analysis because it allows you to talk about infinite sets, right? which means that you can formalize uh, analysis inside it. So this is, you know, if you wanted a theory that you can do all of undergraduate mathematics in, I'm pretty sure this can do it. I don't think you learn anything in undergraduate mathematics that can't be done in this theory. So this is really like the, the, the super theory that can do it all. And, you know, the the, the consistency proof of this exists but we have no idea what it uses we, we have no idea what sort of ordinals are required to make it consistent so when i say what do i mean by ordinals, so what's what's the least ordinal that pa2 cannot prove well founded uh we don't know what it is and we have no idea wow
0: wow you just blew my mind in this this last part over here <laughs> that is that is absolutely fantastic it's, it's nice to see that this is this seems like a very fundamental question in proof theory you know that but it's still open
1: right It's still open. So I should say, you know, we have consistency proofs, but the methods used are entirely impredicative, so so they're not so satisfactory. Um, They're beautiful, of course. I mean, so this proof by Tate. So consistency for second-order arithmetic reduces to consistency for second-order logic, and consistency of second-order logic can be established via cut elimination, a direct cut elimination result, which is exactly what Tate proved. So Tate proves cut elimination for second-order logic using. Uh, I, I believe the first example of this sort of reducibility candidate method, this logical relation method, right? Um, where you take the set of reducible proofs and you show that they're closed into certain properties, and then you show that all proofs are reducible. Right. So something you you may show to show you may use to show that something like all simply typed lambda terms are strongly normalizing. Right. So um, you know, it's this sort of method. This was like the first time we saw these methods, and these methods were generalized by, you know, Girard, um, who showed strong normalization of um the second order lambda calculus, and of course, Spectre, who, who who gave similar results for system T with bar recursion. So, so you know, the, the, we have these methods that we're using all the time, but we don't yet have a good proof theoretic treatment. And of course, what these people did, especially people like Girard, was, um, you, you know, they were motivated by these things, and they ended up developing new tools and new logics, like linear logic, for example, to try to decompose the problem further. And now these things have become separate research lines in their own You know, in their own in their own right. Um, And so, proof theory is, you know, maybe changing again. It's now much more structural than it used to be. So, you know, you you can say that we want to understand proof theoretic strength, but now the tools for it are very very structural. It's about cut elimination and understanding the structural proofs. And um, in the background, there's this whole question of identity of proofs. You know, um, if you think of other areas of mathematics, you always have a good notion of identity, right? So, the first theorem of group, the first definition of group theory is isomorphism, like when are two groups the same? First definition in in, in in you know field theory is the same thing. When are two fields are the same? We have a notion of isomorphism, uh, and one of the big things that's become quite prevalent in the recent decades is to develop a good notion of isomorphism for, for 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 proofs. So we don't have like the fundamental isomorphism theorem for proof theory because we don't really know when two proofs are the same. And I, I think uh, these questions are really inspired by this traditional Hilbert's program style question of understanding consistency strength and when things are consistent. And it's fascinating that that reduces to this incredibly structural, almost philosophical question of when are two proofs the same.
0: Wait, you you lost him a little bit there. You're you're saying that asking the question of when two proofs are the same is very similar to the question of its consistency.
1: I'm I'm saying that the question of consistency somehow almost reduces to that. So if you trace the the line of proof theory from like, you know, early 20th century term to, to modern times, that the, the subject matter seems to have evolved. So most proof theorists are much more of a structural nature now. They study low level structural proof theory, proving cut elimination, proving uh, proven decomposition results um, for logics. But yet this line, there's an unbroken line here between this and, and Hilbert's program, right? Or, or the or at least the quest to prove consistency of theories. Um, so, you know, the, the consistency reduced to cut elimination, Cut elimination of copper complex theories reduced to, um, you know, substructural considerations or, you know, a better understanding of proof theory at the low level. Um, and, and so it's and, and, you know, to understand proof theory at the low level, we all want to have a good notion of identity of proofs. And so it's quite fascinating that, that, you know, just this question of trying to understand consistency, you, you know, that you, you can really see it as being reduced in some sense, not in a formal sense, but reduced in the scientific level to this question of when are two proofs the same, you know, a really fundamental, almost philosophical question.
0: You know, that's one reason why I think homotopy type theory is very interesting is exactly, it's one of the big questions they're asking. When are these two programs the same, right? Like that's the fundamental um, question that it's trying to address early on, right? With the univalence axiom in some sense. Maybe we can talk more about this next episode when we have Thorsten over here. Because he's th- certainly
1: more qualified to speak yeah. about it than
0: me. Right, right, right. But I'm I'm just trying to draw this 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 parallel here now that we're 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 going towards the end of the episode that exactly the problem that you are posing here, that is the, the, the biggest interest in proof theory, which is when are two proofs the same, is one of the I would say the hottest <laughs> one of the most hot parts of, of type theory that's that's been worked on, which is homotopy type theory, right? Which is very interesting, very, very interesting. Um, How about we, we are already going towards the end of the episode right now. How about we start talking a little bit about your research interests? What are, what are the, the cool things you've been working on recently? What are, oh. what makes you excited nowadays?
1: That's a good question. Slightly unprepared for this. I, I think, okay, so I can't, I'm not going to say about the individual low-level results that I've been doing, but I, I, I think I want, I can say something. That I think I said at the middle of graduate school too. So, I mentioned that Genson had this idea of, of making proofs infinite in order to get consistency results. So, you know, he started with Peano arithmetic and he sort of unfolded the induction rule into this infinitely branching omega rule and then proved a cut elimination result for these infinite proofs. And then, and then, one of the developments in the last couple of decades uh, that has become increasingly relevant in proof theory is this idea of non well founded proofs. So this is a different sort of infinite proof. This is an infinite proof that uh, is finitely branching still, but can be infinitely deep. Mm. So a priori, you know, you could admit fallacious reasoning, because as soon as you have normal founded uh, dependency, then you can, you know, you can, you can prove false things. But one of the really cool things about the inception of this area is that it was motivated by results in automaton theory. And it turns out that you can impose certain conditions on these normal founded proofs that are, you know, that stem from... Uh, acceptance conditions for um, infinite word automata uh, that guarantee that your proof is meaningful, or, you know, so for logic that it's sound, or for a type system that you terminate. And and this gives you access to a quite large class of well-behaved infinite proofs. But what's even cooler about these, this sort of infinite proof, is that unlike Genson's methods where you know the proofs were necessarily infinite and had no finite represent had no good finite representation i would say non-well-founded finitely branching proofs do have a good class of finite subproofs of finite uh, fragments which is what are called the cyclic proofs or the circular proofs and those are the ones who have only finitely many distinct subproofs so that means you can kind of write it down as a graph as a directed graph potentially with loops or cycles and why do I think this is cool? Because I think this is something that was not very natural to do in the 30s when Genson was around, but now is much more natural because of the inception of modern automaton theory. So this gives us sort of correctness conditions for these normal-founded proofs, which means we can do some proof theory with them. And the proof theory for this um, has several nice properties. So like I said, we have this good ca- candidate of a finite proof. And this good candidate allows us to develop even more metallurgical results than we could before. So before, you know, I said that cuddling nation, one of, or the sequent calculus, one of the good things about this is that we can prove meta theorems. You know, for example, a bronze theorem or Craig's interpolation theorem, uh, all these famous modern theorems. Well, we can't do that with these infinite proofs. We can prove some things like consistency, but not all things because of the infinite nature. However, with cyclic proofs, because they have fi- because they're finitely representable, sometimes we can. So there are many results now that try to use cut-free cyclic proofs to develop uh, things like interpolation results for what, modal logical fixed points. Um, and so this is really cool that we can use this to get more metalogical results. Um, on my side, I think that these non-normal founded proofs tell us more about the meta theory of a so the meta the metamathematics of a theory. Um, than we could do with usual proofs. So I think this was already observed by, by Grisha Mintz back in the 70s or something, that um, non founded proofs can be seen as a counterpart to non-standard models. So for each non-standard model, you can identify a class of non founded proofs that uh, identified with that model. Uh, I'm not sure he ever formalized this. I think this was always sort of informal in the background. It was in the air at the time. And this is why he developed his uh, continuous cut elimination strategy. But I digress. I think one of the things that wasn't apparent at the time was this automaton theory stuff. So I think one thing that would be really cool right now is to build a sort of bridge to have some more correspondences between proof theory and automaton theory. And I think um this is something this is a question we can only pose like nowadays. We couldn't pose it before because we didn't have the tools to even pose the question. But could there be isomorphisms or correspondences between classes of proofs and classes of automata in the same way that we have isomorphisms and correspondences between say classes of proofs and uh, classes of Lambda terms, you know, like the, uh, you know, like a proof system for minimal logic corresponds to a uh, simply typed Lambda term. And I, I don't think this has really been thought about that much because we didn't really have the ways to phrase this problem properly, but I think this is now emerging. And this is the sort of thing that's driving my research at the moment.
0: That is absolutely fantastic. That's wow. I would never expect that you can actually have, you know, like consistent proofs that are actually cyclical and still makes sense that they're actually non-well-founded. They're actually non-well-founded, you mentioned, right?
1: Yeah, I can give a link to a talk I gave actually um, on cyclic arithmetic. Let's put that um, in the, in the maybe links maybe.
0: on the description. I'll, I'll definitely also put the Stanford, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Encyclopedia over there. So make sure to check out the links of the, the episode. We're going to put a bunch of cool stuff over there. Well, we are almost one hour in. Is there anything else you would like to bring to our attention that we didn't have the chance to discuss? Um,
1: not really. I, I, I mean, you've asked me quite a lot of questions. I, <laughs> I, I've given my personal viewpoint on things. Maybe I'll just reiterate that. Um, on the historical stuff, I see things a certain way. I'm sure other people see things another yeah. way. Um, but yeah, the, yeah the way it, it's better to leave it there.
0: The way, the way I look at it is like, yeah, it's 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 a it's a personal perspective, but in a sense, is is a personal perspective of someone who has a lot of. You've been in the field for a while now, right? Like you have you have you have the rights to to have your your opinion. So it's it's opinion that, well, me particularly, I just started my PhD a couple of years ago, so it's something that we can we can learn a lot out of. Like maybe it's not the the entire truth. Maybe there's there are some pieces that are missing, but. In a sense, we, we all learned a lot from you. Thank you so much for, for everything.
1: Oh, I'm happy to have uh, participated, Pedro. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you. I am lo- looking forward for next episode where we're going to have a very nice discussion with Torsen Altenkirch. We are going to make that happen. So thank- uh, I'm looking
1: forward to this too. This will be <laughs> lots of
0: fun. Thank you so much for coming. And I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I did. Once again, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, don't forget to leave a nice comment in our website, wwwtype 3 But if you really, really enjoyed it, don't forget to recommend it to a friend. Growth and engagement is the best way to keep us motivated to keep producing more and more cool content for you. Spoiler alert, in the next episode, we'll have a real cool discussion of classical logic and intuitionistic logic with Anupam daz and Thorsten Altenkirch. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at p underscore grow abril zero number zero, because I always announce there when we have a new episode. I hope to see you guys next time.